The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Amos at chapter 6. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful. And use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks, Is anyone still hiding there? Is anyone with you? And he says, No. Then he will say, Hush. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, Did we not take Karnaim by our own strength? For the Lord Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebohamath to the valley of of the Arabah. Father, we pray for you to open our hearts to receive your truth and let it sink deeply down that we might be more conformed to Jesus Christ, that we might trust you and bow before you in humble submission. Thank you for your word, and we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. During the great awakening of the 1700s, one of the remarkable features of that awakening was the ministry, especially of the great preacher and evangelist George Whitfield, to the nobility of England. Lady Huntington, who had become a widow at age 39, really wanted to use her resources and her status in society for the Lord's work. And so what she did was she went about doing all she could do to invite 
the nobility of England to her home, both her London home and her country home, and to have evangelists of that era, of the Great Awakening, Methodists as they were known derisively, to preach the gospel. And George Whitfield was the one who did this the most. Hal Harris did it as well to some degree, and others. But it was something that was remarkable in that day because all of these nobles would come, women and men both, and they would assemble in their luxury and in their opulence and in all that they had and possessed. And they would come and hear George Whitfield preach passionately the Word of God. Many of them came just because they were bored and this was something to do and the nobility were gathering, so they would come too. Many came to really mock and deride God's Word. Some came seeking the truth, and some were converted to Christ. But one of the standard mindsets of the nobility of that day was that, well, since we are so exalted above the masses of the poor and the wretches who, who walk on the earth, certainly that will translate into heavenly riches as well. In other words, since I am so exalted in this life, certainly I'll be exalted in the life to come. Now, maybe to most of us, that we can see that that just doesn't make sense and doesn't add up. It was a snare. It was a great snare to the nobility and the rich of that day, just as it is still a snare in our day. And when we think of the people that Amos was speaking to, we see how much of a snare that was in his day. And so we come to Amos chapter 6. Spurgeon preached a famous sermon on Amos 6, verse 1, the scourge of the self-sufficient. The King James says, beware those who are at ease in Zion. This idea of being complacent or at ease in Zion. And I would like us to see two main points here when we think about how the Word of God searches our hearts and finds out all of our complacency and our pride. I want to look at it under those two categories. First, the Word of God disturbs our sinful complacency and security. The Word of God disturbs our sinful complacency and security. And then the second point will be about our pride. This first point is found in verses 1 through 7. And the picture we have here is of people thinking that all must be okay spiritually when it is not. Look how Amos begins this. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, that's Jerusalem, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. So Amos even though mainly he's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, at times he speaks to Judah as well, the southern kingdom. And here he's speaking to the capital cities of the twin nations, Judah and Israel, and he's warning about spiritual complacency. He says it happens in Zion, in Jerusalem, and it happens on Mount Samaria, the capital of Israel as well. Probably, In Jerusalem, they were complacent because they knew they were trusting that the city was special, chosen by God, the place where God's temple and present dwelt. In Samaria, it was probably because of their military strength and their power. It was a a powerful nation. 
Trusting that all is well with your soul and with God must be based only on the Bible's truth. You must not be at ease. You must not be complacent and self-satisfied with the state of your soul for the wrong reasons. And we want to look at some of the reasons we have here for a sinful complacency, a wrong security, a wrongly founded security. What do we find when the Word speaks to our heart and lays bare the things that we human beings tend to find spiritual security in? We see a number of them in our text here. The the first I would note is our religious heritage. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, in Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem could look at their religious heritage and say, certainly we will go to heaven. Certainly all will be well with us in this life because we are the special chosen people of God. We have the religious heritage on our side. In fact, we have orthodoxy on our side. And in that sense, they were right. They were orthodox. Remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and she tried to draw him into various arguments of different kinds. And, and he, he didn't make a big point of this, but he said salvation is of the Jews. He, especially, he essentially at one point said, well, the Jews are right, and the Samaritans are wrong about these worship wars of that day. Mount Samaria was not where the presence of God dwelt. What a terrible trap it is to trust your religious heritage and not trust the living God. Now, in Mount Samaria, they maybe trusted their religious heritage. As I said, probably the main thing they trusted was their military power and strength. If they did trust their religious heritage, they were trusting in a non-Orthodox religion because they had strayed already, even at this day. And how, how powerful of a tool of Satan this is. For people, whatever the religious heritage might be, to think that that's going to be their ticket to heaven. That's going to be the thing that's going to make them acceptable for, with God. It was good enough for their parents. It was good enough for their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandparents. Certainly isn't it good enough for me. And whether it's an orthodox, in other words, Bible-believing heritage, or whether it's a totally wrong heritage, something totally false and not according to God's Word, trusting your religious heritage itself is insufficient. Beware, woe to you who are complacent in Zion. So the first false confidence is religious heritage. A second one is human respectability. Human respectability, that's found in the second half of verse 1, where Amos derisively calls them, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Now, Amos is probably using the language and the terminology and the designation that they themselves like to be thought of. They call themselves the notable men. They are the first citizens And the people of Israel come to them. They come to them for wisdom. These are the power brokers of that society. They come to them to have their problems solved. These are the people who can get the job done. And they were respectable. The idea 
that since you are not any worse than the person next door, and certainly even better than some people that you might know or get news about or read about on the front page, that because that you have a degree of human respectability in human terms, then you can stand on the judgment day is utterly opposed to the truth of God. Isn't it interesting how we can always find somebody to compare ourselves to that makes us look a little bit good? We know that that is a false basis for confidence before God. And so the Word of God comes and says, Woe to you! And Amos is saying, Do not think that because you are notable and well-regarded and the leaders of your city and society that that's going to hold any water before God Himself. There's a point in the movie, Saving Private Ryan, that I've always liked. It's at the very end. If you've seen that movie, you know it's a, it's a stirring movie about World War II. And in, in the account, the movie begins, and you go through kind of the eyes of this old man, and you don't know who the old man is at first, but at the end of the movie, you find out it's Private Ryan. And Private Ryan had to be saved out of the war zone of Europe because the government, the U.S. government, finds out that his three brothers have all been killed. And they just don't want all four of the, of the sons of this family to be killed. So they send a team of GIs to find and save Private Ryan. And the movie goes through all this war zone combat and I'm spoiling the story here, but you've probably already seen or know about it. They do save Private Ryan. And at the climactic war scene, Tom Hanks, who's the character, the leader of the squad, his character is, is at the final bridge they have to hold, and the Germans are coming, and it looks like, you know, saving Private Ryan is not going to be saved. And Tom Hanks is mortally wounded, and he's, he's shooting his final shot with his pistol at this German tank coming across the bridge. And Suddenly, American bombers fly over and blow up the tank, and you know that the day is won, and Private Ryan is at Tom Hanks' side, and Tom Hanks is dying, and Private Ryan is crying. He's this young 20-year-old or 18-year-old boy. Tom Hanks dies. Moving scene. And suddenly, you go through Private Ryan's eyes, and you realize that that was the old man at the very beginning. And Tom Hanks' last words to him were, make it worthwhile. Live a good life. Live a good life. And so Private Ryan there at the end of the movie is on the Normandy Cemetery area. He's in front of one of those white crosses, and he stands up weeping, and he says to his wife, tell me I've lived a good life. And his wife assures him, he's lived a good life. He's fulfilled what those GIs laid down their lives for in saving him 50 years beforehand. Now, at a human level and as a human story, it's a wonderful story. And I don't think Tom Hanks' character meant any more than what Private Ryan did. He ended up being a good husband, a good father. He raised his kids. He was productive in society. He uh, was a, a man in that sense that we would say he was a good man. But the problem is the Bible's standards for a good man goes way beyond that, doesn't it? You know, the people in Samaria or Zion, their children might have been able to say he was a good man. 
And that would be true in, a, in one sense of the word. In human standards, we can say those kinds of things. We can mean those kinds of things. But before God, we cannot have any kind of security or complacency or hope for eternal life based on our good works. This is why the great preacher Spurgeon, when he applied all this, he applied, he applied it again and again and again to anyone trying to find their security and their acceptance before God in their good works. It utterly fails. And in verses 2 and 3, God warns them that they should not shut their ears and rationalize away his declarations of coming judgment. He says, do not be complacent. And there's this reference to them going to Kalna and Hamath and to Gath. These cities, Kalna and Hamath were to the north. Gath was to the west along the Mediterranean Sea. And he's saying uh, possibly that these cities were destroyed or partially destroyed earlier. That could have been the case. So they stand as a warning to Israel. Or more likely, Amos is saying that these cities have somehow not fallen into the same kind of false security that Israel has fallen into. They do not have this false security that that nothing can make them them fall. But whatever the reason, Amos is pointing to these as examples and saying, look at them. You're no better than they are. You might think you are. You might think that you'll never fall. And in fact, the judgment that Amos was declaring, this temporal judgment of exile that would come, foreshadowed eternal judgment. The third reason for false security that we find here is their wealth. In verses 4 to 7, you lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lound on your couches. It's interesting that archaeological digs have actually found evidence of ivory when they've studied some of these areas. So they're couches, their beds were inlaid with ivory. We imagine a very elaborate, ornate, wooden couch of some sort with ivory. And then we find that they dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. Verse 5, they strum away on their harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful. In other words, another just by the cup, they use big bowls you, and use the finest lotions, but... Verse 6, you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Now, the Bible never tells us that wealth in and of itself is evil, just as it never tells us that poverty in and of itself is virtuous somehow. No, that's not the case. It does tell us the love of money is the root of all evil, and Jesus tells us that wealth is is a great snare spiritually when he says how hard it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The real problem with wealth is it's one example of something that's very easy to take refuge in, to find security in your wealth and to letting your wealth make you complacent spiritually. That was certainly true for the nobility of George Whitfield's day, that they could make and, and, and take this gigantic leap across this chasm and say that because they were well-to-do, that certainly spiritually they must be okay. And that's what was happening here. 
people trusting in their wealth. The scary thing to think about for me is that you and I, I'm guessing everyone in this room, is fabulously more wealthy than the people of Amos Day. We don't think of ourselves that way, but in terms of standard of living, what we have, of course, maybe not in comparison to everyone else in our society like the people being addressed here. But the real problem they had is that he says in verse 6, they do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Now, Joseph is just another way of referring to Israel. Joseph was one of the main tribes. Two sons of Joseph were two of the main tribes. They do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. It was going to become a devastating national ruin in terms of enemy armies overrunning them, but the real basis of the ruin was spiritual. The people were not grieving over their sinfulness that is going to bring this temporal judgment of God upon them. Doesn't it remind you of Jesus saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted? And he's talking about mourning over our sin, that the comfort of the gospel is for the person who is mourning and grieving and repenting of sin. And the picture here is that Amos is proclaiming a judgment to come. Verse 7 says, Therefore you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Isn't it interesting that in verse 7, they're the first to go into exile. These very people who in verse 1, we might say in another translation, are the first citizens of the first nation. That was their mindset. We're the notable ones. We're the first citizens. Well, Amos, I think, is a play on words there, and he says, well, you'll be the first to go into exile. They were trusting in their wealth to some degree. They were ignoring God's word, and we find again and again in Amos that the fruit of that was that they were actually oppressing the poor and thinking that since we are rich and strong, as a nation, things must somehow be okay between us and God. Again and again, Amos sounds this theme. And we can make an application to ourselves, a twofold application here, really. And we think about complacency and what we put our security in. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, well, where is my heart? Am I trusting in my wealth in some way? Am I trusting in human respectability? Am I trusting in my religious heritage to some extent? Hopefully, that's not the case with any here. If so, you need to turn away from trusting in any of those things and trust Jesus Christ alone. He is our only hope. How can I lift up my heart to God only because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness on my behalf? And so where is our heart? Of course, we have to continue to guard our hearts as Christians because it's easy to slip to some degree into trusting in some ways these other things and putting our stock in them. And then the second question in terms of application for ourselves is, is there some fruit then of a heart right with God? I could not help but as I read this think, this is very convicting to read Amos 6 and to think that I'm wealthier than most of the people that Amos speaks to. I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as just middle income. The problem is, 
These people were oriented completely around themselves. And one of the great fruits of the gospel is that when it comes and our hearts are changed, as we, be, we begin to have a heart for others around us. We begin to serve others. We begin to give of what we have. We're not so bound. We, we don't keep every penny of what we have. We begin to give. And so there's this fruit of a heart that is transformed by the gospel. And so how do you know if you're trusting in wealth or respectability or religious heritage, you know, first and foremost, because your heart is trusting Jesus Christ, but then there's the further fruit of that in a life that is increasingly transformed by God's Word. The Word of God disturbs our complacency and our security and other things. But secondly, let us consider the Word of God disturbing our sinful pride, verses 8 to 14. Here we see at the beginning of this section that the sovereign Lord takes this oath. Verse 8, the sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. God takes an oath here. He says that he has sworn by himself. In the ancient Near East, oaths were taken very seriously. Our society doesn't take oaths quite the same way. We take written contracts very seriously, but that's really the equivalent of what oaths were in that day. And if a person made an oath, he was required to carry out that oath no matter how costly or painful it might be for him or her. They were required to keep that oath. God makes an oath here in this section as an expression of, of the absolute certainty of what he is declaring in verse 8. I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city, that's Mount Samaria, and everything in it. The oath underlines the authority of this declaration from God himself. There's no doubt what God says. And God is putting his finger here on one of the underlying sins of the heart, which is pride. And the Word of God exposes pride. We could almost say that complacency and false security are a fruit of a deeper heart issue, which is sinful pride. It's at the very core of Israel's sin. Very easily, we could have had James' words in James chapter 4, be addressed to the people at Amos Day when when James says, but he gives more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. James goes on. Doesn't that sound like that could have been Amos declaring that, very similar in some ways. Could have been written in that day. And then Amos marshaled these further examples and arguments to warn them about the danger of their pride and where it's taking them. Here we see two further arguments here. One is in verses 9 and 10, and it's a difficult passage to know exactly what's being said. It's this passage about it's envisioning that the destruction has already taken place. 
that the enemy armies have come and done their work and the nation's been destroyed and taken into exile. And so here a relative comes to burn the bodies that are found in a house. And, and he asks, is there anyone there? And the answer from someone is no. And then there's this, this saying, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. Now, it may mean, there are different interpretations of what it means here. It may mean it's dangerous to mention Yahweh, the name of the Lord, anymore at this time because of the the battle and the war and what's happening here. Or it may mean that they will not be able to invoke the name of the Lord. It's wrong in this situation to call upon the Lord or invoke the name of the Lord in this day of judgment. Normally, one could call on God But in such a time as this, when the God of the covenant is coming in judgment and judging the land, it will be be to no avail to call upon his name. So there's this command, we must not mention the name of the Lord. In either case, it's a very disturbing picture of the certainty of this judgment and the desolation that this judgment brings. And this this first example is concluded in the words of verse 11. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Whether you live in a big house on the hill or whether you live in just one of the normal houses, God is going to smash both kinds. And verse 11 is introduced with this particle that says, the NIV translates it for. Maybe your translation has a fuller translation of that word. It could be, for behold, truly. Or it could be pronounced and translated, so it will be, a declaration that this will happen. In fact, that same word is used at the beginning of verse 14 in the NIV. It's for there again. But it's to describe the certainty that God is pronouncing judgment on the pride of Israel. And then there's this second argument that's marshaled using these series of absurd questions in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? Now, you can imagine Amos saying that as he preached in the street, and he would get his audience with him because they would say, no, that's absurd. You don't let the horses run on the rocky crags. They would trip. They would break their legs. They'd have to be destroyed. And certainly you don't plow there with oxen. No. It reminds me of... I was at a township meeting in Mannheim Township last year when the variance was being approved to put these big lights around the athletic complex across the street from our house. And at one point, they were trying to get a variance for the fence height, too. And the township, one arm of the township was applying for a variance at the other arm of the township. And Peeker was justifying why they needed an eight-foot-high chain-leak fence around this field. And they said, we need it so people don't put lawnmowers over the fence. And I just kind of thought, what? <laughs> Everyone there, what? So he had to explain more. It's kind of, it kind of reminded me of this text. Do, uh, do you plow on rocky crags? Well, the story is people do put lawnmowers over eight-foot fences if they can because they like to destroy artificial turf fields. It gives them a kick somehow. So uh, that's a statistic that I didn't know. Uh, that variance, by the way, didn't go through. They only got a four-foot fence, and I guess they thought, well, if people can get it over an eight-foot fence, they'll get it over a four-foot fence. But it's kind of an absurdity. In that case, it was true. In this case, in the Amos day, they're saying, don't I have you on board here? 
We don't let horses run in places where they're going to fall and break their legs. We don't plow. We don't take our, our oxen and plow on these rocky crags. Then he speaks the truth directly to them. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. He's again addressing the awful negative fruit in their lives. They're not walking with God. They are not repentant. They are not trusting in the Lord. They are not bowing before him. They've turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. And then in verse 13, there's a final absurdity he brings out. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? This final absurdity is for Israel to think that they won their own battles, forgetting that it was the Lord who brings the victory. That was always the case. It's God who gives the victory. And the word Lodabar, it's kind of a double play on words. Lodabar means no thing. Lodabar, no thing. And the word Karnaim means horns. That was the typical metaphor for strength. And so, did we take horns by our own strength? Did we take strength by our own strength? Both cases, it's an absurd question. A true Israelite would know, no, we didn't do this ourselves. It was the Lord. But what prevented them from agreeing with this? It's because of their pride. Amos concludes this section of verse 14 with another, So it will be truly, behold, amen. The Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel. And we know that nation was Assyria. That will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. Lebo Hamath was the very northern tip of Israel. The valley of the Arabah was the very southern tip. And so it would be like saying, I will oppress you from Maine to Florida. I will oppress you from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast. It was going to be thorough. God's judgment was going to come. And so again and again, Amos declares the judgment of God, and he condemns them for their spiritual complacency and for their pride. How can we apply this to ourselves? Certainly a sobering and a sober warning, isn't it? Twofold application about human pride. One is this. Pride is one of the most fundamental reasons why people do not come to Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about pride is that none of us really think we have it that badly. In 1 John, John recognizes the danger of pride. And his threefold declaration about the things we have to watch in this world, he says, Do not love the world or anything of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world... And then there's these three phrases, the cravings of sinful man. In other words, the things that we desire, the things that we lust for, the lust of his eyes, the things that we see and want. And then the third thing is the pride of life, or as the NIV has it, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The Apostle John, one one of the big three, you could say, is the danger of the pride of life. We've already seen the danger of money and having that as our security, which is a false security. Uh, It's a type of pride in things. But whether it's pride in money or religion or good works or just pride in that I'm not 
all that bad? I mean, that's what the normal non-Christian thinks when he hears the gospel. Do I really need a Savior to die for me? Do I really, did Jesus really have to come and be nailed on a cross for my sins? I'm not all that bad. The problem there is it's pride that prevents us from seeing the nature of our sinfulness and our need for Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of Tim Keller's saying that the gospel tells me that I am much more sinful than I ever dared imagine, but much more love in Jesus Christ than I ever dared hope. Well, the first part of that is what pride doesn't like to hear. I'm much more sinful than I ever dared imagine. Pride is fundamentally opposed to the gospel. As we think about pride keeping us or keeping someone from Jesus Christ, pride takes this form, and it allows us to set up our hearts and our minds and somehow be judges on God's word. So we know what the Bible says maybe to some degree, and we think, well, I can't believe that. I just can't believe that the Bible says Jesus Christ is the only way, and you have to turn to him and trust in him and turn away from your sin. That's so exclusive. That's so intolerant. That's so narrow. How can that be? And maybe a person even sounds pretty humble in saying it, You see, whenever you stand as a judge somehow upon God's word and upon the gospel, the basis of doing that is your pride. You're saying, well, I'm the one who ultimately knows what's true and false. And I'm ultimately the one who's able to say, well, I think this is fair and this is not fair. And so I stand as the judge and jury on the word of God rather than letting the word of God search my heart. And if that's what you've been doing, the gospel comes, and it humbles all human pride. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul went to Corinth and talks about its impact there and how God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, he says, he tells that, that Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Isn't it interesting that the gospel humbled the pride of both Gentile and Jews, both types, two people in the world, two types, Gentiles and Jews. The gospel humbles the pride of both types. Whether you're looking for miraculous signs or whether you're looking for wisdom, the gospel humbles all human pride. And in that sense, Paul says it's a stumbling block, and yet it makes foolish the wisdom of the world. The gospel is the very wisdom of God. And so when we come to Christ Jesus deals our pride a death blow. Yes, we still need to be putting sin to death. And that brings us to our second point. Pride is an area of remaining sin for all believers. When we come to Jesus, our pride is no longer what it once was. We've humbled ourselves before God. There's still a lot of pride in our lives, in our hearts, and in all that we do. And pride is really thinking too much of ourselves, taking pride in all kinds of things. Even the problem of spiritual pride comes in. Even pride in preaching. Even as I'm preaching the very Word of God, I can be slipping into spiritual pride of some kind. How devious are our hearts? 
And we should not think of the people of Amos' day as all that much different from us. There but for the grace of God go I. We are called to learn from their example, their bad example in this case. And here's the bottom line. Pride takes so many forms. It's very insidious. We must be guarding our hearts against it. How do we do that? We do it, number one, by the word of God, and number two, by glorying in Jesus Christ. Think of the word of God. We've just read the word of God. We've sought to apply it to our hearts. The word of God is so rich in exposing our pride. And as you read the Bible and as you hear it preached week after week, month after month, I hope one of the impacts of that is that it will be speaking to your heart in your life in the areas of the things that you tend to take pride in. Maybe it's something we haven't talked a lot this evening. But you know, and I know, that all of us take pride in various things. And there's certainly a form of pride, which is a pride that is submitted to God and looks ultimately to Him. We'll talk about that. But the Word of God searches our heart. I always like John Piper's illustration of the car in the race, and the enemy is throwing mud on the windshield. Piper says, you need the Word of God, which are like the windshield wipers of the race car, and the Holy Spirit is like reverently speaking, the washer fluid that, that helps take that dried cake mud off. We need to have the Word of God sinking into our hearts as we pray and seek Him in the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit, open my eyes, Lord. Search my heart, O Lord. See if there is any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pride is insidious. We must continuously be seeking to put to death pride and guarding our hearts. And the other way we do that is to develop the habit of worship. Nothing so much takes the power out of pride than by giving ourselves to praise and thanksgiving to God. In fact, it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul is talking about the stumbling block of the gospel, he concludes chapter 1 by saying, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so if something good is happening in your life, make sure you turn it into praise. If you're succeeding in some way, let it be an avenue of giving glory to God. If you're enjoying wealth to some extent, recognize it's not your own doing, but enjoy it unto the glory of God. All the good things that God pours into our lives, learn to glory first and foremost in Jesus Christ. And so coming to Christ means laying aside all pride. It means humbly bowing before Jesus Christ. It means taking God's word and believing it is true, even though it humbles our own rationalizations and excuses and the pride and complacency of our heart. You know, we have an old GPS, one of those portable GPS. You you can put it in the palm of your hand. And the thing about this GPS is that it doesn't seem to be working quite right. So we were in Washington, D.C. the other week visiting our daughter down there. We plugged in some coordinates of where we wanted to go. And we didn't know where we were going, but we didn't think the GPS knew where we were going either. So obviously we were lost. We had to, Patty had to pull out the map. You know, we found our way there eventually. It's not very easy to trust a GPS that you think is malfunctioning. Because the only time that I know it's okay is when I know the way, right? So the time I need a GPS is when I don't know the way. 
then I need to. But if I can't trust it, you see what I, the catch 22, I'm in. Well, the assurance we have from Amos chapter 6 and the assurance we have from God's word is God's word is true. It's like a GPS that never fails. And we don't know the way. God knows the way. God is king and Lord of our lives. We can trust him. Yes, he humbles our complacency and our pride, but thanks be to God, the gospel sets us free in Jesus Christ, free to humble ourselves before God's word and to know that we stand in Christ alone. Father, thank you for the riches of your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that uh, not only do we not have to fear whether there might be disaster in our day, and we do not know what might come tomorrow, but thank you that we do not even need to fear eternal disaster because we are secure in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for his work on our behalf. Thank you for how sweet the name of Jesus Christ is in a believer's ear, that we know you and are known by you. In his name we pray. Amen.